Let's start with prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your, your example to us through them. Be with us. Send your spirit today. Be with each of us as we share. May we honor you. May we speak for you. May we be able to be winsome to those around us. And may we know that you are with us and will protect us and give us everything that we really truly need. Amen. Okay, we're studying um, garments of grace, clothing imagery in the Bible. And this week is lesson number 12, hopefully. Um, the um, more clothing imagery. Essentially, there's several um, stories that we're covering this week in the, in the lesson quarterly. The hem of his garment story, the laying aside of his garments to wash the disciples' feet, the rending of the high priest's garments at the Christ Inquisition, garments of, rock, of mockery before Pilate, and then casting lots for his garments at the cross. Let's turn to Sabbath afternoon's lesson. In the introduction, it lists the stories, and then it says at the bottom, just clothing, yes, but full of symbolism and meaning. I'd like to go, we've done this before in the class, but I'd like to go over this a little bit again. What is a symbol? Something that stands in the place of something else. Um, how do we use symbols to communicate? Do you have any exam typical examples? No smoking signs. No smoking sign? Language itself. Language. Hand signals. Hand signals. I'll get to that in a minute. Words. Words. Other things like that. Um, what would happen if your meaning for a given symbol differed from what the person you were communicating with understood that same symbol to mean? Chaos. Chaos. Uh, in preparation for a national um, organization that's coming to investigate or rate or whatever our hospital and in, and in part the orthopedic practice that I'm a part of, these... Wonderful Minskins come around and tell us what we can and cannot say. And they have a whole list of abbreviations and symbols that we cannot use. Uh, many of them are treasured ones. <laughs> but um, there have been cases of an abbreviation or a symbol being mistaken in an order or something and ten times or a hundred times the appropriate dose of a certain medication is given, resulting in obviously bad things. Um, do you know of any Christian symbols that mean something different to you than one of your Christian friends? Cross. The cross. Anything else? The symbols of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. Lord's Supper? Okay, there's even relig uh, religious uh, affiliation differences among those symbols. Anything else? The sanctuary. The sanctuary. Yeah. The symbols and imagery of Daniel and Revelations, the beasts. The yeah, the beast. Mm -hmm. Armageddon, et cetera, et cetera. The robe of Christ's righteousness. Mm -hmm. blood. The blood. 
When I was in medical school, um, I was in Southern California, and we took a family church combination vacation around Thanksgiving time. I think it was during the Thanksgiving break, actually. And we went down to Baja, and um, we were camping on the beach. And I was very thankful because my cousin, who had um, lived in Bolivia and Peru and whatnot, was there with us. And I thought, well, great, he can translate for us. While traveling down, we stopped off a very scenic venue um, by the, the ocean. We were stopped to look, and a, immediately a guy in a pickup truck came up and started yelling at us something. And so I turned to Jerry and said, hey, you're on. You know, and he says, says, don't look at me. I'm a preacher, and I know the vocabulary of a preacher. I have no idea what the common language is. Uh, so anyway, um, he was claiming that view as his own, and he needed money for the privilege of looking at of looking at the ocean. Okay, that was that was the bottom line to it. But is there any consequence to this difference of meaning in the religious symbols? What's that consequence? Misunderstanding God's character. Does it change your salvation? Okay. Um, is it important for you to correct your friend's misunderstanding or something about his use of symbols? If you're going to communicate, do you have to make sure that you're talking about the same thing? Yeah. If you love them enough to die for them, then it's important. I think it's important if you're trying to communicate an idea or talk about a given topic, you need to make sure you're, you're using the right words. When I was recruited to go to North Carolina for my uh, um, practice, um, I got within six weeks of moving. In fact, we were, were arranging for the moving van and all that sort of stuff to travel there. And for, for one last time, I flew back to North Carolina and talked to the, all the parties to make sure that everything was set up. And um, it became very evident that I was using words and the hospital was using words and the practice that I was joining was using words and we had none of the three of us were using the same meaning for those very same words. And so each of those entities, I included, had an expectation about what was supposed to happen when I arrived that was not going to happen if all three of us were talking, you know, different. We were saying the same words. We just were not saying the same thing. So I bailed out and did something else temporarily. So anyway, Sunday's lesson. Um, Sunday's lesson goes over the story of the woman who was healed by touching the hem of Christ's robe. Two-thirds of the way down, there's a question. It says, um, why would Jesus ask who touched his garment? Now the paragraph right following that has two reasons why he would ask, he would stop everything. You know, he was in a hurry to go help a girl that was very ill and dying, okay? And he stopped and turned around, and the whole procession stopped, and he said, who touched me? And the, the paragraph below gives you two reasons why it's, it's possible that he did that. Um, I would like you to give me your reasons why you think that Christ did that. He wanted to know if she would admit to it. 
Why was it important for her to admit to it? I think it was important that she knew that Jesus was aware of her presence and that what he had done for her. I think that she needed to realize that he... So he was aware, okay? Or, or at least that she knew that he was aware, okay? Um, to strengthen her faith. Okay, to strengthen her faith, all right? Yes. Uh, if you stop to realize she had been ill with this issue of blood for 12 years. Okay. She was really an outcast from society. Okay. And by making her known publicly, he was more or less reinstating her, you might say, into society. <laughs> that once she'd been an outcast, but now she's healed and made whole. And she can be accepted back into society. Okay, so for 12 years, she had never gone to church. Okay? She had never touched anything holy. She had never touched anyone else in the community's hand. For 12 years. Had never touched a single other person's hand. Okay? And so, um, yeah, um, to introduce her back into, etc. All right. Yes. My thought was that he, he wanted, he did not want her or anyone else to think that just the touching of his garment was in some kind of a, you know, a miracle, but rather he wanted her to, to acknowledge that it was her faith or her trust in what she knew about him that, and the exercise of that trust that brought her the healing. Okay. Why was that important? What are the, I mean, possible reasons. I mean, I'm sure they'd be going for all, all day, but, you know, but why would it be important that he'd say, it was your faith that healed you and it wasn't touching my coat? Well, because, I mean, we have all kinds of different religious things that go on where people have these miracles happening by the touching of this or the touching of that or the sprinkling of water or whatever. You know, I think that God just wants us to know that this is not what brings healing to us. Okay. Was it important that her theology was corrected? When was she healed? Before her theology was corrected? Or after? Before. So it wasn't to give her healing that she had to have correct theology. And since she had already been healed, it's probably unlikely that she's going to come back and say, touched again. Okay? So it wasn't for her, I don't think, that she needed to know that it wasn't the garment. Okay? But can you imagine the chaos that would rule <laughs> if everyone thought that his clothing was magical? Yeah. Uh, yeah, some people still do, you know. We have a certain shroud in Italy that, you know, is well well guarded. Um, we have nails that are thought to be actual from, you know, etc. Hair and other things, etc. Whatnot. And there are is a certain place in France you can go and touch certain things and um, be healed. Um, in Rome, oh, in Rome, I think it's in Rome. It's the mouth of truth. You guys been to Rome? There's a mouth of truth. And you put your hand in the mouth of truth and you take your, your future betrothed or whatever 
to the mouth of truth and say, stick your hand in there and you have to say, if I'm telling you the truth, uh, my hand is, is okay. And if my hand is, if it, I'm not telling you the truth, my hand will get cut off. <laughs> and uh, so everyone loves to take their picture taken with their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, getting this hand in the hand of truth, you know. Um, is that kind of what was happening? I mean, you know, um, yes. You know, it's, it's very close to us every day. For example, on TV, I saw a lady being interviewed back at her home that had been blown away by the tornado and she dug around and she found a little, I think it's a doll or stuffed animal. A little face, and it had been her mother's. And she said, "Oh, I found my mother's face. It kept us safe during the storm." Oh. And she'd already said that God protected her, but then she, in the same paragraph, went to the base. Well, for many people, that is the same thing. Yeah. Okay, and I, I don't mean to, you know, right. Our pediatric intensive care unit went from empty to full in about, I think, four hours. But my partner treated a couple of kids that um, came in, and um, she did a, a TV interview two nights ago. And I don't know if it's been broadcast or not or whatever, but the uh, interviewer was trying to push her and say, you know, was this a miracle that he survived? His, you know, both parents died, you know, everyone in the family died except for this one kid, and he was, you know... Whatever. And, and, and the, the interviewer was really trying to point, you know, was this really a miracle that he survived? And um, she's a very strong religious individual, but, you know, she said, no, I don't think it was. I think it was good fortune, and that was not what he wanted to hear. So, anyway. All right. So Christ commended her faith. Think about this. How long had it been someone, had someone commended her for anything? You know? When we are God-like, or Christ-like, are we more about the right behavior, or more about strengthening and encouraging others who are struggling with trials that we little know of? You know? Um, now, um, she mentioned that um, she had not been part of the community, and so this was a way of Christ introducing her back into the community. Do you think this woman would have kept it a secret? No. For 12 years, she had not been able to do anything. You know, I think it was nice that he did this publicly, and, and, and all of a sudden, everything else, but I don't think she would have kept it a secret. Yeah. If she was well, I think the path from her door to the priest's door would have been a quick one. Okay? With all due respect. Do we think know. that she got it, that it wasn't the hem of the garment? That, that's, that's a good point. She might have been really effervescent and evangelistic about what happened, but she might have misascribed the power as well. Right. Do we sometimes ascribe the power, I mean, the story was told about this vase, etc., but sometimes do we, even in our own community, ascribe something based on our theology. Well, we prayed for him, but he wasn't healed, so, you know, there must be something in the woodpile somewhere, you know? And, I mean, maybe his theology is not correct, or maybe he hasn't con confessed all his sins, or, you know, on and on and on. And that's some of the, the self, 
self-defeating, I think, ideas the devil loves to hit on our head if, if we're undergoing a, a tragic situation and, it, and we are not pulled out of the fiery furnace. You know, I, I commend the, the, the Hebrew worthies because they said, O king, even if we die, it doesn't make a difference. You know, we seldom are placed in that position where things are so black and white that we're saying something for God or against God by some statement we made. You know, most of us just live our lives and, you know, life goes on. So, anyway. Um, in the, the paragraph, it, it lists that it was a witness to others. In Desire of Ages, um, on this chapter that covers the story, uh, Mrs. White says, Our confession of, this, of his faithfulness is heaven's chosen agency for revealing Christ to the world. We are to acknowledge his grace as made known through the holy men of old, but that which will be most effectual is a testimony of our own experience. Better than the Bible. Often we want to get proof text them, you know, and yet that is not what's most effectual. It's our own testimony. We are witnesses for God as we reveal in ourselves the working of a power that is divine. Every individual has a life distinct from all others and an experience differing essentially from theirs. God desires that our praise should ascend to him, marked by our own individuality. These precious acknowledgments to the praise of the glory of his grace, when supported by a Christ-like life, have an irresistible power that works for the salvation of souls. The Tsar of Ages 347. So, yes, it was for a witness, you know. So, anyway. Okay, who was with Christ during this time? His disciples. Who else? Jairus. Jairus. Who was Jairus? A ruler of the Jews. A ruler of the Jews. He was a supplicant. He came to Jesus because his daughter was dying. Okay, his daughter was dying. What role in the community was he? He was a synagogue ruler. A synagogue. What's the synagogue? The church. The church. He was a church ruler, okay? What was his role in this story? I'm not talking about the, the father of the sick girl. What was his role in the story with the sick woman? Who had to tell her whether she could come to church or not? Jairus. Was it important for him to hear that she was healed? Okay. Yes. Do we know whether this was done on the Sabbath or not? I don't. I don't. I don't know that. I don't remember that. I don't. I don't, I don't know that. You know. But but think about it. Jairus was the, the temple ruler. Okay, she had to go to him to get her blessing, you know, he was right there. Now, I realize that at the time, he probably didn't appreciate it, okay? I mean, he was on a hurry to some other task, but he probably, in his society, also needed to know that God was interested in someone else's daughter. Are we not all sons and daughters of God? And sometimes we overlook the fact that this person who's driving us nuts 
is, is the son and daughter of God. Celebration. At the healing and restoration of a church member to the community. Could it be a, a, also a sense of celebration? Um, turn to Luke 15, 7. When you get that, read, someone read that out loud so that we can all hear. Luke 15, 7. I tell you that there is, in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So all heaven and the angels have a party when someone repents. Have, have you ever participated in a party for someone who repents? Well, a baptism sometimes. Baptism. My son is going up to a baptism in Cleveland area, up on the lake or river or somewhere up there today, etc. And I think they're having a, a family party or whatever. Should the church give parties for sinners that repent? Yeah. You know? I don't know how many of you have heard the um, story about Tony Campolo of when he was in Hawaii and he couldn't sleep and he went into this little diner. And um, and he was sitting there eating a donut and coffee, and in came all these prostitutes. You heard the story? Yeah. It's hilarious, you know. And I, I didn't want to take all the time to tell all the story, but essentially the bottom, the the short version of the story is that he and the diner threw a party for a birthday party for one of the prostitutes because she had made the statement when she was in there that morning that she had never had a birthday party and the next day was her birthday. And so he went out and bought decorations. The, the diner chef, the old curmudgeon, um, baked a cake and they decorated this old diner. And at 3.30 the next morning, when these prostitutes filed in, they had a birthday party. Well, this young woman was so overwhelmed by this thing that had never happened to her in her life that she just was almost fainted. And then they said, okay, cut the cake. You know, she's just standing there crying. And so the old curmudgeon chef said, cut the cake. Let's get on with this. And she says, oh, no. I have to go show this to my mother. So at 3.30, she grabs the cake and runs out of the diner. And so all these people are in the diner. And what do you do? <laughs> well, so what does Tony Campolo do? You know, he, he says, let's, let's pray. You know, and so he has this prayer. And Immediately after the prayer, this, the chef says, wait a minute, who are you? You didn't say you're a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And with eloquence of the moment, Tony said, I belong to a church that gives birthday parties to prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And the chef says, no, you don't. If you belong to a church like that, I'd go. <laughs> I looked on the internet last night trying to get the rest of the story so I was telling it accurately in case I had to, and I guess I am, but um, <laughs> couldn't find it. S several years later, uh, fairly recently, um, Tony was in Atlanta um, with a preaching and whatnot, and 
they had a break in the service and the back doors for this auditorium opened and in came a woman pushing a cart with a birthday cake on it with the candles lit. And as she's pushing it up, they all sang happy birthday to Tony Campolo. It happened to be his birthday. You know, it was a prostitute from Hawaii who is now living in Atlanta with a different life and whatnot. And um, I think that we should probably have more, more parties for sinners that repent. If all heaven is dancing, you know, I just, you know, we, we could do better. It's interesting that in Christ's portrayal of the three lost things, the lost coin, the lost lamb, and the lost son, what happens at the end of every story? There's a party. At the end of every one of those three stories. I just, you know, that says lots to me. Okay. All right. Turn to Matthew 9.22. This is at the, um, this, when Christ stopped and whatever, and, and this acknowledgement, etc. Instantly, Jesus stopped and he turned to her and said, Don't be afraid. You didn't do anything wrong by touching me. Your faith has been rewarded and you are healed. The woman knew that the instant she had touched his robe, she had been healed. Okay. So what was the first thing he said to her? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Anyone, any, any other versions? Take heart. Take heart. Be of good comfort. Be of good courage. He called her daughter. Anything else? Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. You know, he wanted her to feel better physically, socially, Spiritually, mentally, cheer up. You know, can you imagine this woman, what the direction of her head was when she walked around town for 12 years? That's a habit. Okay? Do we have that effect on those around us on a daily basis? Sometimes I'm so stressed with my life, I can't hardly stand it, you know. Yesterday was one of those days, and I just needed God to tell me, hey, cheer up, you know. I'm with you. I'll, I'll provide everything you need, you know. Get your head off the, the floor, you know. So, anyway. All right. Was anyone else in the crowd energized by touching Christ's garments? I mean, Peter said, hey, everyone's touching you. Okay? Was anyone else energized? No. So it wasn't the clothes. All right? Um, So it wasn't the clothes that were holy. All right? It was a person that was wearing them was holy. Okay? Now, sometimes we treat certain things with reverence. I grew up in a family that we could never put anything on top of a Bible. No other book, no, no newspaper, nothing. The Bible had to be on top. I also grew up in a church that my father always sat on the end of the aisle. And we as a family sat in. There was a young single mother in our church that had two young children. She had immigrated from Germany. And although she, she was an American, had, got, had followed her husband over to Germany, they got divorced, she came back to America and settled in our town for some reason. I don't know why. She had no supports. 
you know, she had two little hellions. <laughs> and I think in the interest of getting them to behave, she would sit up front, which did not work. <laughs> and um, periodically, one kid would just jump up and start screaming and start hauling for the back. And we lived in a different era in that when I grew up. And my dad stuck his foot out. And the kid, before the kid hit the floor almost, my dad had him up by the back of his, his pants and hauled him outside and sat with him on the church steps. Um, the mother thanked him for that. It was a different era. Um, um, but, you know, my father be, believed very strongly in church reverence. It bothered him immensely if we talked, chewed gum, did all sorts of stuff in church that we have since accepted as normal behavior. But um, I just want to point out that the objects that we are in reverence are in reverence because of what they stand for. They're not holy in themselves. In the Old Testament, we have incidents in which people were chastised and whatnot, even some kids were mauled by a bear for irreverence, but it was always done in the administration of trying to get an idea across rather than something itself being holy. You said it was a different era. Uh-huh. So, does that mean that in the era of today, the things are less holy? That not the building, but what it stands for is less holy today than it was then? I don't think the things it stands for are less holy, but um, I think our symbols are different. And how we treat them are different. Now, I brought a book. It's called Culture Shock, Italy. Okay? A Guide to Customs and Etiquette in Italy. I went to train for two months or a little longer in Italy during part of my training program. And my wife bought this book for me to read. And she read it before we got to Italy. Um, I read it on the plane and shortly thereafter. In the, this book is basically to how you to live in Italy, appropriately culturally, so you don't make faux pas. And um, in there are, for those of you who can see, there are several pages of hand gestures that you should or should not use when you're in Italy. Um, I wore clothes that made me look like an Italian. Um, you go to Italy, and if you're sitting there on the park bench and wa watch people walk by, you can say, American, Italian, Italian, American, whatever, just by their shoes they're wearing, just by the t how straight their teeth are, and uh, by the clothes they wear. And so I, I was there, and I was passing myself off as an Italian as much as I could. Kept my mouth shut and um, wore the appropriate clothes, and I wasn't bothered. And um, because of that, unfortunately, because I was in a, a town up on the Lake District, um, it was a little manufacturing town, but it was, still had quite a few tourists come through, people would stop and ask me directions. Um, and so I had this little spiel, I'd say, in my best Italian of, I'm sorry, I can't help you, etc. By the end of the, a couple of months or so, I was able to give them directions in Italian, but my wife kept saying, Wendell, stop pointing. This finger, the index finger in a point is a symbol of anger 
and judgment in Italian. You never point to tell someone to go there because you're essentially yelling at them saying, you need to go there, you stupid idiot. (laughs) You open with your hand down and point with your full hand, relaxed, down. If you turn your palm up, it's like, you idiot, you know, you're yelling at them, okay? And so in reading this book, I had to learn all sorts of cultural things. Does that mean that I didn't understand other things within my own culture? No. And if, if I'm in a church that has extreme reverence and certain behaviors, I try to comply to that. But I also have to realize that I do not live in the town and the time that I grew up. I don't. And um, I think we still have holy things. and I still think they point to, to God who is above and beyond. I am wearing a, a, a bow tie. Yes, I am. Um, a bow tie this morning that has... DNA on it, the diagram for DNA on it. I wear that because I th- every time I see that, I can't help but think of a creator God that's just incredible. I have several Sabbath ties, okay? Animals, creation, DNA, you know, uh, other things, you know, that, that remind me of who I am. And those, you know, are... Special because of what they do in my relationship to him. Okay? Do I think it's inappropriate for someone else to wear the same tie on another day and it have no meaning at all? Yeah. You know? Symbols are what we have in our understanding. And I'm frustrated at times that others don't understand my symbols. The lack of reverence is a degenerate. I don't think just just because it's become a custom uh, for our kids to get up three or four times and go out of church to get a drink, uh, or that they talk, or that they would bring food, eat during church, and all that. I don't think, or we play whatever kind of music that we want to play. I don't think that that is true. I um, we've accepted the. I heard a preacher use it this way. We, we dress the way the world dresses. We sing the way the world dresses, or sings. We drive what the world drives. We spend how the world spends. All of these things doesn't mean that it's right. It's the nature of it. To me, it doesn't. I don't disagree. Okay? Going along that thought, <laughs> Desire of Ages, further in the same, same, same chapter we talked about before, to talk of religion in a casual way To pray without soul hunger and living faith avails nothing. A nominal faith in Christ, which accepts him merely as the Savior of the world, can never bring healing to the soul. The faith that is unto salvation is not a mere intellectual assent to the truth. You just don't believe the truth. He who waits for entire knowledge before he will exercise faith cannot receive blessing from God. It is not enough to believe about Christ. We must believe in him. The only faith that will benefit us is that which embraces him as a personal savior, which appropriates his merits to ourselves. And we can go on with that anyway. Many hold faith as an opinion. Saving faith is a transaction by which those who receive Christ 
join themselves in covenant relationship with God. Genuine faith is life. A living faith means an increase of vigor, a confiding trust by which the soul becomes a conquering power. I went to first service this morning and as they were uh, talking, I sat there and like a lightning bolt from somewhere, um, I realized how little faith I had in a major area of my life. It's humbling. All right, moving right along to Monday's lesson. Someone read for us the paragraph, uh, the first paragraph, in the last few days. In the last few days of Christ's life on earth, he met with his disciples in the upper room for the Passover, Israel's national celebration of the exodus from bondage and slavery. Yet all was not well. The atmosphere in the upper room must have been thick with tension and ill will. Not much earlier, the disciples had been fighting over who would be considered the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now they had come together to celebrate the Passover, which should have been spoken to them of their great need of God's saving grace in their lives and how dependent they were on him. You know, I've read this story. I've heard this story. I've, I've participated in communion how many times, you know, my, I mean, this is just part of the culture, you know, and it's hard for me to read this story or the crucifixion story or any other story around the, etc., without kind of just zooming right along, etc., and not having any clue that this was anything other than a play. Okay? I mean, I'd like you to just think about the upper room, this situation, just what we read as an introduction to that. I'd like for you to, to think about, okay, um, what would it look like? You've just walked into the room. Christ is washing his disciples' feet. Who was the best person? Who was the best dressed person in that room? Okay. Who was the best educated person in that room? Judas. Matthew. Probably Matthew or Judas. Who was the most outspoken and verbal in the room? Peter. Peter. What did God look like in that room? A servant. A slave. We say servant, but really it was a slave. You know, because in that culture, like many other cultures, a um, person of equal whatever does not touch the foot on someone else's body. Do we look like a servant when we're interacting with our peers? I'm talking about on a daily life. Yesterday I had some meetings that were uncomfortable. And um, I don't think I looked like a servant. But you know, it's funny. I'd rather look like a servant than a slave. I, don't, I didn't look like a slave either. <laughs> but I mean, it's, a servant doesn't sound so bad to me. Yeah. A slave sounds bad. It does. You know. Um, turn to John 13. Someone read verse 13. Ye call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for I am. So he was, he was their Master and Lord. Will Christ look any differently when he comes back in the second coming? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
In what way will he be different? He's dressed like a king. With a crown on his Okay. Will his personality be any different? No. You know, and I don't have time to go over it, but um, there's all this imagery of, and he will rule the nations with the iron of rod. You know, what does that mean? Especially in light of what he, he did when he was here. Why did Jesus act in the way he did? Let's read the same chapter, starting that same, um, at the beginning of it. Read from John 13, 1. It was Thursday, just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and return to the Father. Having loved his people all the years he was here, he continued to love them to the very end, regardless of how they treated him. Okay. I'd like to read this from several versions because there's a couple nuances of how these are translated. Had fun with this. Um, someone else, another translation. 13.1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. Okay. How, how do your other translations say that last phrase, to the end? Showed the full extent of his love. Full extent of his love. NIV? NIV, okay. Full extent of his love. To the end. Anything else? To the very end. To the very end. Okay. Um, so he loved them to the very, completely, completely to the end. You know, there's a whole bit different um, nuances here. Okay, he loved his disciples. We've done it before. I'd like to do it again. Um, what is the definition of love? Others-centered. What else? Unselfish. Unconditional. Unconditional. If you were to write a dictionary definition for yourself on what love is, what is love? Now, chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians is quite long on what love is. But if you were to have a capsule Definition, what is love? Giving of oneself for the good of others. To giving of yourself at the preference of others in yourself. So something to the effect of to live or act in the behalf of another. It's an act of the will and the intellect. Okay? What's the opposite of love? I'm sorry? Hate. Hate? Indifference. Selfishness. Selfishness. If to live for others as their preference is love, then selfishness is the, is the opposite. Be careful, though, because in this class, that's our understanding of love. If you go to a dictionary, you will not find that. I don't care if you look up agape or whatever else. It's not going to say that. Okay? I love that definition because I think that truly is the epitome of what, uh, what love is. If you read 1 Corinthians 13 or whatever, the condensation of that is you're putting someone else first. Um, Hebrews 10.24, let us be concerned for one another to help one another to show love and do good. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some of our doing instead. 
let us encourage one another all the more since you see that the day of the Lord is coming near. Why do we go to church? Why do you come to the Sabbath school class? Is it to nourish yourself or is it to help the other people in the class learn more about what God is like? Well, it's both. But I think that what we're reading in Hebrews is the primary reason for going to church is not for yourself. That's not my idea of why I used to go to church. You know, habit, you know, because we're supposed to feel guilty if you don't, lots of other reasons, you know. But the real reason to go to church is to help someone else and encourage them and demonstrate God to them and help them encourage them in their way. Yes. But you can only give what you have. And so if you don't have the love of God in you, you can't share that with others. That's right. Exactly. And, so and, you have to make an effort in some way, either personally or at church or somewhere, to learn the love of God. If you get your nourishment once a week at church, it's not going to work. No. Okay. So I agree that, yes, we are benefited when the, you know, and Tim has all these illustrations of plants and everything else, etc. When they give off oxygen, they are enriching themselves. Okay? Life cannot continue. They cannot grow unless they do the circle of love. Okay? And so in, in serving others, we are benefited. But we, we don't do it because we need to be benefited we do it because it will help others in the process we are benefited. Um, church to be entertained. Oh, yeah. We'll find ourselves drifting from church to church. Unless you get a really good one. No, I'm um, sorry. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Philippians 2, 5 through 8 have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, although he was in the form of God and equal with God, he did not take advantage of equality. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, by becoming a, like humans, by having a human appearance. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. We are to be servants to others. Um, but that's nonsense to a lot of people. That truly is nonsense. All right. The bottom of, of the uh, Monday's lesson, there's a pink section um, someone read that pink sex or something. How are you willing to go for the good of others? When was the last time you, quote, took off your outer garment in order to minister to the needs of those around you? Is it a sacrifice to live for others? Sometimes. Okay. Is a mother feeling like she's sacrificing herself when she's caring for her child? No. No. And yes, and sometimes. <laughs> really, sometimes. Okay? Is that one of the reasons that God gave us the ability of procreation? So we could create others in our image that we could help. To teach us a little bit about what He is like. Okay, Wednesday's lesson, Garments of Mockery. I'll preface my little statements here by saying that I have not liked, traditionally, to read the story of the crucifixion. 
I can't stand to see an animal suffer. Um, I try to dodge animals. The other morning on the way to work, a squirrel ran out in front of me. And the, I'm sure the car behind me wondered what the heck I was doing because I slammed on my brakes. Now, I didn't swerve. I know better than to head for the ditch because there's bad things that happen because I take care of them when they do that. Um, but um, I slammed on my brakes and looking in the very, very mirror, is it getting too close? And yes, I would have squashed the squirrel if it took, you know, being me squashed. But um, I, so I, I just, it, the whole thing just bothers me. Um, I have not seen the movie The Passion of Christ. Okay. Um, if, like some, you think Christ had to suffer for your individual acts of sin and um, that you are not relieved of the guilt without him act- dying for each and every act, then his suffering becomes much more important. Okay? I think that's one of the reasons for the passion of the cross or of Christ, whatever it was, the mo- whatever the movie was, you know, it was apparently very gory, you know, and many lay individuals, um, I was going to say crucified, but no, um, scathed it because it was too gory for they felt to be put on as mass entertainment, okay? Um, others read Psalms 22 and say, well, Christ was just performing a play. He did this, and he did this, and yeah, he looked, looked verse 2, he says this, and then verse 4, it says this. Yeah, he, he was just doing a play. Who was being mocked during Christ's trial? God. God. That is incredible, if you think about it. God was being mocked, and whatever, Okay. Um, on both uh, Monday's lesson and Wednesday's lesson, Monday there's a, is a sentence in the second um, uh, paragraph, something about as if the disciples, um, you know, and it says, Jesus had every right to be disgusted. Okay? In Wednesday's uh, lesson, there's a paragraph that says, Jesus was stripped and garbed. Someone read that paragraph if you don't mind. Jesus was stripped and garbed in a scarlet or purple robe. This robe could have been a soldier's cloak or one of, a pil- or one of Pilate's old cast-off garments. Purple was the color of royalty. This robe was thrown in mockery around the shoulders of the man who claimed to be king. Did he have any rights at the time? In Monday's lesson it said Christ had every right to be up- upset at his disciples. Here he's in a trial. Did he have any rights? In America we talk about our rights. We have the Bill of Rights. It's very important to our national culture to have rights. Well, the scripture says uh, before he took off his robes, and, when, and Jesus, when he had been given all power, took off his outer garment and washed the feet of the disciple, disciples. So um, rights, as we understand them, rights are based on our form of government. They're based on our, you know, loosely on our Constitution and interpretations of our Constitution. So that, that's what we associate our rights with. Uh, the rights, uh, according to the government of God, I, I hope to one day have a better understanding of it. Do we have rights right now as Christians? We have a right to worship when we choose. We have a right to worship? 
if we make ourselves vulnerable, we give up our rights. When Jesus came down here to the earth, he made himself completely vulnerable. So he doesn't have a right to be upset because he brought it upon himself. So he was just doing a play. He had to do it. If you say that this is what love is, then yes, he had to do it because he loved us so. Does it make any difference who's being mistreated? Yourself, a family member, your child, your co-worker. When is it appropriate to demand fair treatment? The box at the bottom of Wednesday's lesson talked about fair treatment. It was unfair, treated unfairly or whatever. When is it appropriate for you to be treated unfairly and you take it? And treated unfairly, and you not take it. You answer that question you about the rest of us now. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I just want to think about a couple things as we close, and that is was Christ active or passive during his trial? Uh, I, I'm, hear, I'm, I'm hearing both. <laughs> Choosing to remain passive or to remain—he was at war. I mean, humanity was at war with uh, divinity, and he he subjected his humanity to. And he, he by that time he had developed the character, a godlike character, in his humanity, and said he was still being tempted to save himself because he had the ability to. What was his purpose in acting the way he did during his entire trial or standing before Pilate? Okay, so if we say that, it's almost like, okay, I have to act this way because this is what God wants me to do because he has a message to tell someone. He was God. Ah, he was God. So he was acting like himself. Okay? Who, was, who were the people that he was trying to save? The ones that were persecuting him. Soldiers. Everyone. Pilate. The priest, everyone who was there, he was trying to get to. Okay, um, why didn't he drink? You know, when he was up on the cross, they offered him a concoction to help numb the pain. He tasted it, realized what it was, and didn't drink it. Why not? Wanted to keep his mind clear so that he could be in connection with his father. But the father abandoned him. Why, why have you abandoned me? He felt like he'd been abandoned, but I don't think God abandoned him. He was right there at the cross. Okay. Did the okay. angels believe that he is doing the right thing? We're told that they were ready to take him right off the cross. Yeah. Maybe they didn't understand it either. Right. Was Christ manipulating the situation? <clears throat> Was he in control? He was in control of himself. He was in control of himself. He was not in control of the situation. Okay? It's important to remember that we cannot be in control of anything. Oh, don't get me started. Um, we cannot be in control of anything except ourselves. 
Um, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, whatever, etc. And self-control. Did Christ ever give up his self-control to the Father? He made choices, and it was still his choice until the end. This was not a play. This was who he was. There's a question number three on Friday's lesson. It says, does this ignorance of what they were doing in any way excuse their actions? Why should they be punished for something they did, ha, did without knowing exactly what it means? And I just want to leave with the, a few questions. You don't have to answer them. Who would punish them? Okay. How would they be punished? Does it make the difference to a person who accidentally ingests poison if they know what kind of poison it is? Does poison act any differently if they don't know you're ingesting it? Okay. Will ignorance of the direction I'm traveling make it any more likely that I will arrive at where I'm wanting to go? Or that I will like the destination any better when I arrive at the wrong one? Will I be punished for arriving at the wrong destination? Will I be rewarded? Let's bow our heads. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of thinking about you. Thank you for your life on this world. Thank you for your life today in our hearts. Please continue sending your spirit to, into our lives. May we walk with you. May we honor you. May we know what we should do today and how we should interact with those around us in our work, in our play, in our leisure, so that we may serve others. Amen.